Good morning, church family. Hope you're all doing well. It's good to be here this morning. Uh, as uh, Jamin mentioned a few minutes earlier, my name is John Hall. I'm one of the lay elders uh, here in Plano, and it's uh, great to be here with you guys today. I just want to tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, since I'm a lay elder, in case you don't know what that designation means, it simply means that I don't work on church staff here. So I have a job outside of this place, and my job is I'm the executive director of an organization called AIM for India. And so we work in India, we do missions there, and so if you ever want to talk about AIM for India, I can talk about AIM for India all day, but we don't have time for that right now, and so we'll move on. Uh, I am married to Laurie, my beautiful wife, and at the end of this month, uh, we will celebrate 26 years together. We have five children, all boys, thank you, appreciate that, Uh, oldest being 22, youngest being six, I know we planned that well, and so... Went good for us. Uh, When we got married, my wife wanted to have three kids. I wanted to have two, and so we compromised, and we had five. (laughs) And so it just kind of worked out that way. That's another story for another day. I was actually uh, scheduled to preach this sermon at the end of December, and that was the Sunday of the infamous gas leak. And so here I am uh, preaching today the same sermon that I was going to preach to you on December 30th of 2018. Uh, On behalf of all the elders, I just want to let you know, man, we are thrilled and excited to be able to shepherd you guys, to love you guys, to lead you guys. I appreciate the fact that you make being an elder here a joy and not a burden, and I know all the elders feel that way, and we love you guys. I just wanted you to know that, man, I am am excited. I am more than ecstatic about what's going to take place here in the next two weeks. We're about to roll off and become Citizens Church and be on our own. And man, that is going to be an exciting day. And so I am thrilled about the prospects of that. But uh, I'm not up here to talk about becoming Citizens Church in two weeks. We're going to take a look at the parable of the talents this morning out of Matthew 25, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And here's what I'm after in looking at the parable of the talents. So I've had people that have come up to me before, and they've asked me, um, what does God really want with my life? And where in the Bible specifically does it say that that God wants these things with my life? And I think those are great questions. I think those are good questions. But before we go there, I know the parable of the talents can help us with those, but before we go there, I want, I want to ask another set of questions. Do we really understand who God is? And do we truly want to know the nature and the character of God? Or are we just simply satisfied with deceiving ourselves into believing that we can know just enough of God so that I can go on living my life my way? so that I can basically do the religious bare minimum? Am I deceiving myself into believing that I can know just enough of God to keep me out of hell? Francis, Francois Fenelon was a French theologian. He was a poet. He was an author. He lived in the 17th century. He wrote a book called The Seeking Heart, and in that book he asked this question. He said basically to just read the Bible, to attend church, And to avoid big sins is this really passionate, wholehearted love for God. But in so many ways, that's really been the approach of the North American church to discipleship. Many of you grew up in churches or came from churches that were like that, where discipleship was basically, hey, just come to church, and while you're out there on your own, do a little praying, do a little reading in the Bible, and while you're out there, don't commit any doozies. And so unintentionally by doing that, what the church communicated at that time, that discipleship is more about what you know and how religious you can act rather than living within the reality of what Jesus Christ has already provided for us in his death and his resurrection. 
In doing so, most conducted a church where people are encouraged to put on a show for God and for fellow man. And all the while, they fell at the primary responsibility to make disciples. And all of this can be condensed down to a simple reason, is that we don't know, we don't understand the true nature and character of God. And because of that, we have no idea of what he expects of us as individuals and no idea what he expects of us as a church family. And so let's dive into Scripture today, and let's see what God's Word has to say about all of this. So we're going to be in the parable of talents in chapter 25 of Matthew, but before we go there, let's set the context together. And so I want us to take a look at Matthew 23. So for people who are not familiar with Matthew 23, if anybody ever says that Jesus never said a harsh word, that Jesus never came across as being, uh, you know, Uh, mad or angry or anything like that, they probably never have read Matthew 23. And so he has this confrontation with the Pharisees where he just levels them. He just lets them have it. And then at the end of chapter 23, he gives this lament in verse 37. It reads this. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You wouldn't have it. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, the reality is a lot of us can relate to the same things that Jesus is saying about Jerusalem, is that Jesus has come to us and he's, he's wanted to gather us under his wings. He wanted to take us in and make us part of his family, and we wouldn't have it. We're content with living our lives our way. We're content with going our own direction, with doing our own thing. And because of that, nothing is going to change into our lives until we acknowledge the coming of the one who can change all of that. And Jesus, at this point, he walks away from the temple. He walks away from the conflict that he's had with the Pharisees. And we look at chapter 24, the first three verses. It says, Jesus left the temple. He was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. This is interesting to me because he's obviously left the temple. He's obviously had this conflict. He's walking away from it. His disciples come to him. They point out, they point back, hey, the temple's back here, Jesus. What are you doing? Why why are you leaving the temple? And he says this, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, I want to tell you, in their day and time, this would have been one of the most shocking things that you could have heard come out of Jesus' mouth. It would be like us walking around in Washington, D.C., and all political jokes aside, but if someone you knew was telling you the truth, took a look at the Capitol building and said, there's going to come a day that building won't be there. And all of these memorials, they're going to be obliterated. The White House, it'll be wiped off the face of the earth. That would be disconcerting to us. And so in the same way, to hear that the temple wasn't going to be there anymore, it would be shocking to the disciples to hear this. And so verse 3 tells us, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, and they have two questions for him. And here's question number one. Tell us when these things will be. And question number two, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now think about the motivation behind these questions. Think about what's really being asked here. Why would you want to know when this is going to happen and what would be the telltale sign that this is about to go down? Because the reality is it's about self-preservation, is it not? Hey, I don't want to be around Jerusalem when this is going on, right? And so Jesus, in his kindness, in his grace, throughout most of chapter 24, lays down a litany of things that are going to take place and happen and those kinds of things. And then in verse 42, We come to a place where he shifts gears. 
And Jesus begins to answer a third question that the disciples never asked him. He begins to address the issue that is really at hand that needs to be addressed. And this is the third question that never got asked. What should we do with our lives between right now and when Jesus returns again for a second time? So listen to me. Is this not a question that is still relevant to us today, that is still not pertinent to us today? This is a reality for us. And Jesus begins to answer this third question of what should we do with our lives between right now and when he comes back. And he answers that in three different parts. The first part, he begins in verse 42 of chapter 24. It goes all the way through chapter 25, verse 13. And basically, he's telling us to be prepared to be prepared for the reality that he is going to come back one day. And we should live in light of that reality. And so as we know that that is fact, that that's going to happen, it hasn't happened yet, but it is going to happen, it should change the perspective of the way that we live life. Our mindset should be different. We should understand that there is a reality out there that may not be present in our current circumstances, but it goes beyond our current circumstances. And so we're ready for that. We live in the reality of that. And then we come to our passage that we're going to cover today, which is the parable of the talents from verses 14 through 30. And basically, we'll get to this in a minute, but basically in a nutshell, what he's teaching here is that God has entrusted his kingdom things to us. That God has entrusted those things to us. And then the third part of that third question they never asked is the rest of chapter 25 from verse 31 on. And he tells the story basically of the sheep and the goats. And in that he's revealing to us is that all of these things that God has entrusted to us, there are people out there that we're supposed to expend those resources on, even the least of these. And so let's come back to our text today. Let's take a look. We're going to take a look at the second of these third parts that Jesus is trying to address in this third question. What should we do with our lives between right now and when he comes back? And so beginning in verse 14, if you don't mind reading with me, we're going to begin the parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once, traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But he also who had received the one talent came forward saying master i knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow gathering where you scattered no seed so i was afraid and i went and hid your talent in the ground here you have what is yours but his master answered him you wicked and slothful servant you knew that i reap where i have not sown and gather where i scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming i should have received what was my own with interest So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. 
For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so this morning, uh, I want to take a look at this parable. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to take a look at the characteristics of the master, take a look at the characteristics of all the servants involved, the five and the two-talent servant, and then the characteristics of the one-talent servant. And so let's take a look at the master first as we dig into this. Now, obviously, a parable is something that teaches us a spiritual lesson, a truth about God, if you will. And so in this account, in this parable, obviously the master is representative of God. He is the master. They are the servants. And you're thinking to yourself, thank you, Captain Obvious. Okay? Since the Bible just comes out and explicitly says that. But I want to say this to you just so we're clear on it. He is the master. We are the servants. I want us to understand that. He's in charge. We're not. He is in control of all matters. He gives orders, and they have the choice to obey them or to walk away from them. He is the only master. There is no one else in this category. He is sovereign, and he reigns completely. He controls all matters in this parable. He is even in control of matters when he goes away on his journey, and he's not even physically present. He's still in control of all matters. And this is where things get a little crazy. He allows his servants the privilege of sharing in his work. Now, now when I was a young boy and I was growing up, I grew up in West Texas in a little town outside of Lubbock. It's called Littlefield. And uh, on days like this in the summer when I was out of school, I spent most of my days riding a dirt bike all over Littlefield. This is before cell phones existed, before all of those things. And so in reality, I was out there looking for buddies. I was out there looking for friends. And most of the time we were playing something. Some days it was football. Some days it was basketball. It might be baseball. It might be tennis. Whatever it was, I didn't care. And so as a young guy growing up, I wanted to hide my insecurities in the hopes that I would be accepted by my friends. And I did that mainly through athletics and through sports. And so I would go find wherever the game was going. And then you know how it would go. The game's usually already in progress. And so you're hoping against hope that you're going to get included into this group. And so I would just go plop down on the grass and sit there and wait in the hope that somebody would notice me. And then eventually somebody would say, hey, John, you're here. Okay, great. Hey, uh, you want to be on this team right here? You want to come join us? And can you imagine the excitement in that? Of being accepted into that group, of being invited to play into that game, to feel the need that you're actually needed as part of that, and then to go out and get to compete against your friends and owe the joy. But listen to this. What if God said to us as his servants, hey, I want you guys to come to the game, and I simply want you to sit in the bleachers and watch me play. But God doesn't do that. What if God said, hey, I'll go a step further. You guys aren't going to sit in the stands. You get to come sit in the dugout with the team. I mean, how cool would that be if you get to sit in the dugout and you get to watch God do his thing? But that's not even what God does. God goes a step further than that. God looks at us and he says, hey, grab a glove and get on the field. And the reality is, the reality is we can choose to go and enjoy that and be a part of that. Or we can say to God, nah, I'm good doing my own thing. I've got this thing going on over here in life, and I'm I'm just going to stick with that. And God has invited us into the ultimate, the eternal 
the only thing that matters. And so the parable of the talents is incredible in this, that it is answering this question, what are we supposed to do with our lives? And it tells us that the master has not only invited us into life with him, but he has entrusted to us his possessions. I mean, he's going a step further. He's saying, here's my kingdom. Take the resources of it. I'm giving those things to you. I'm entrusting those things to you. And the beauty of God entrusting his possessions to us is that it helps answer the question, what does God want with my life? Because God would not entrust those things to you if he did not want you to do something with it, right? But the problem is, those things that he entrusts to us a lot of times come to define us. And we try to make those things exclusively about us. And the problem that we all have is that we love the master's stuff more than we love the master. And we fight with what Romans 1 calls, we fall in love with the creation and we forget to love the creator. And that's the reality for all of us. That is our struggle in life. But we have to remember who is in charge and who has entrusted these things to us. According to the parable, whose possessions are they? Obviously, they're the masters. Who has he entrusted those things to? His servants. And so that's important to remember. This is not a story for a story's sake. Parables are stories that teach spiritual truths, truths about God. And if this is a parable about how we should live now, then the stuff you own, whose stuff is it really? And be careful, because you're about to commit the base sins of pride and idolatry. Whose stuff is it really? God has entrusted those things to you. God has entrusted the people in your lives to you. God has entrusted the opportunities in your life to you. Be careful what you do with those. So the master gives to each servant what they can handle, not more, not less, but what they can actually do. And just because God has given us something that we can handle, that does not mean those things are not going to push us. Obviously, it is going to test us. Obviously, it is going to try us, but he's not going to entrust to us more than we can actually do. And then the parable tells us that after a long time, after a long time, after the servant's, have had plenty of time to do what the master has entrusted to them, the master returns. And someday, the king of kings and the lord of lords is going to return. He's going to come back for a second time. And when he does that, he is going to settle accounts with everyone. And on a future day, he will settle those accounts with all of us. And on that day, he will be gracious, he will be kind, and he will be just. And we need to remember that, and we need to live in light of that. And so as we take a look at that, that's the master. Let's take a look at the five and the two talent servants here. Now, remember in this parable, just to be clear, here's what a talent is. We use the word talent in the English language as an ability or a skill. That's not what this is talking about. A talent is a large sum of money. Essentially, it would be what a person could earn over their lifetime. And so in essence... What the master has done in this parable is he's entrusted to one guy five times what he would earn in his life. He's entrusted to another double or twice what he would earn in his lifetime. And he entrusted to the third guy just what he would earn within that lifetime. Now, the great thing about this is that each servant handles the master's task in different ways and each according to their abilities. Now, the master is equitable in his view of the servant's differing abilities. Their tasks are viewed by their faithfulness to what he's entrusted to them, not by the amount of responsibility he's entrusted in. In other words, the two-talent guy doesn't get knocked because he only is responsible for two talents, and he doesn't handle what the five-talent guy can do. 
or the one talent, conversely. So these guys are, there's an equitable view by the master of this. They're only viewed, they, they're only viewed by their willingness and their faithfulness to the task. The servants also had a bent towards obedience. The Bible tells us these guys went, the five and the two talent guy, they went immediately to the task. They went at once to do these things. So whatever else they had going on in their lives, they simply pushed those to the side and the master's tasks, the master's commands became the priority in their lives. The servants also went, which means they didn't stay. I find it interesting that what the master had for them to do, it didn't take place where he entrusted to them the talents. They had to go somewhere else to do that. And so what I found out, what I read in Scripture, what I've seen in most of Christian history, and what I've seen from personal experience is that most of God's business is transacted on the other side of sent and went. And missions is one of the things that's at my heart, and I know it's at the heart of this church and the heart of the leadership in this church, and it's an exciting thing as we look forward toward the future. It says, the servants went and traded with the master's resources. Now think about this. We gloss over that word and we quickly go to it. We don't think much about it. But here's essentially what it's saying. They invested what the master had entrusted to them. Which means at the time, they didn't know how that investment would work out. Think about somebody else giving you their money and you say, you know what? I think I'll go invest this for them. And then what if you lost it all and you came back to them and you say, hey, sorry, that money you entrusted to me, I lost it. These guys went and invested with their masters. Now, we know how it works out, right? The five-talent guy, he doubles it. The two-talent guy, he doubles it. They have a 100% return on their investment, which is awesome and which is great. But at the time, they didn't know how that was going to work out. Listen to me. If this is a parable about how we're supposed to live right now, then what this is telling me is there is no way that we can live this life without there being risk involved in following Jesus. You are going to encounter things that are going to try you. You're going to encounter things you don't know how they're going to work out. And your call is to be faithful to what God has called you to do. And so in reality, we have been entrusted with these things. And as we're entrusted with these things, we're going to take risk for the kingdom of God. These guys, they weren't risk for the sake of being risk takers. This is a calculated risk to do kingdom business, see kingdom fruit for the love of their master. So let's take a look at the outcome for these two guys. Here's the master's response to their handling of his task. He says to both of them, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, what does good and faithful imply? Is it moral perfection? No, absolutely not. Is it that they worked hard enough that God was just blown away by their awesomeness? Like he was looking down from heaven and he's like, look at the five talent guy go. Look at the two talent guy go, man. They are just so awesome. No way. There's no way that's what that means. Is it that their hard work finally won over God's affection and love? It's like God was like, I'm kind of on the fence about these guys, but now that they've worked so hard, I really love them and cherish them. That is never what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that God already loves us as much as he's ever going to love us. So could it be that in spite of their sinful imperfection, that they lived with a bent towards seeing God's will done for his glory? Absolutely. 
That's what it means. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That is the goal of my life. That is the thing that I want to hear at the end of this task, that I want God to be able to say those things to me. He says, you are faithful with a few things. I will trust you with much more, meaning many more kingdom things. Enter into the joy of your master. Man, there is nothing that God could offer us that would be any better than himself. The invitation to walk with him. The invitation to be in this with him. The best that he has for us is himself, which includes life with him. And these guys are modeling for us what life should look like here. That we take what the master entrusts to us, that we're faithful with it, that we make it the priority, that we chase after those things and we pursue God in the relationship with him that comes from walking, the joy of walking step for step with him. And then we come to the one talent guy. Look at verse 24. The first words out of his mouth said he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you. Let's stop right there. Did he really know him? Or did he just know things about him? Part of my fear I don't know all of you. I don't, I don't know your circumstances. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where your heart is. I, I don't know those things about you. But part of my fear is this, is that we have people that walk in here week after week after week. And for you, this is just some religious exercise. This is some box you just check so that you can go about your week. And you know all the right answers. And you know the thing to say. And you know the church culture. And you know how this works. And you know it well enough that you can walk in here and you can know things about the master without ever knowing the master. It's terrifying to me. It, it is a scary thing to think about. And we go on to find out that the one-talent guy, his motivation for acting and deciding as he did, that he went and he dug a hole in the ground, and that he hid that amount of money, his motivation for doing that was he was afraid. He was fearful in that. And fear will never accomplish God's will. Look, fear-based decisions are this. They're motivated by self-preservation, and they're based on a human wisdom. They're usually a knee-jerk reaction that has not been thought out or thought through and certainly not prayed through. On the other hand, spiritual decisions are a different thing altogether. Spiritual decisions are this. They're motivated by a relationship with Jesus. They want to see his will accomplished for his glory. They rely on the truth and the assurances of God's word rather than their own wisdom. And so they look to scripture and they say, I know God is faithful and I trust this and, and I base my life on this. And as we find out that not only is he afraid, but he goes and he hides the one talent in the ground where only he can find it. So he digs this hole in a place that he's comfortable with, in a place that he's familiar with. He seeks a place that is safe. He seeks a place that is comfortable for him. He attempts to hold on to things of God as if he controls them and not God. By the way, that's a sin. It's called hoarding. He goes on to do this. It's the attempt to control things under God's sovereign rule as if they belong to me. It's my agenda versus the will of God. And I choose my agenda over the will of God. That is a dangerous place to be. That is a dangerous place to live. It is not somewhere you want to go. And then this is the thing that he says in verse 25. And I cringe every time I read this. He's dug up the one talent. He's brought this to the master to settle accounts with him. And he holds the money up to the master and he says, here, you have what is yours. It 
It is the attempt to pass off your failings, your sin, and your disobedience as some kind of spiritual victory. It is the attempt to fool God into believing that your agenda and your way is actually God's will. It is the individual's belief that they're bent towards safety and comfort. It's also known as sin. It's also known as disobedience. It's also known as doing less than your own unique ability will be somehow blessed by God. It is an arrogant, presumptuous attitude toward God by someone who does not know him or understand him, and this does not go well for him. Look at the outcome for the one-talent sermon. Here's what God has to say in this moment. You wicked and slothful or lazy servant. I don't know about you, but that's not really the first words I want coming out of God's mouth when I stand before him. You wicked and you slothful servant. Why is this his sin? I want to make something very clear to you. He did not steal this money. Okay? He did not intend to steal this money. He is not a thief. The reality and the terrifying part of this parable is that he has no idea he's in sin. He doesn't understand that what he's doing is actually sinful. He presumed upon God things that were not true of God because he did not know God. And as a result, he lived his life. He lived it his way. He went about his things. And he took the things that God had entrusted to him. And he did nothing of kingdom significance. In a spiritual sense, he just laid up. He played it safe. He did his own thing, his own way. And he risked nothing for the kingdom. The master goes on to say, your limited knowledge of me should have motivated you to pursue even the smallest kingdom of efforts. You should have put my money in the bank where I would have drawn some interest. Don't misunderstand this. Don't misread this. This is not an invitation to do the bare minimum of God. God is addressing a matter of the heart with the one talent servant. It's not that he tried to serve God and failed. It's that he didn't even lift a finger. And it's this matter of the heart that God is addressing with them. And so the one talent is taken away from him. It's given to the guy who has now 10 talents. And so this is not a parable about succeeding or failing in attempting great things for God. This is a parable about who God can trust to have the heart to do kingdom-minded things. So we look all throughout Scripture, and we ask ourselves this question, is God faithful? Can I trust Him? And the answer over and over and over again is yes, of course we can trust God. But we never bothered to ask ourselves, could God trust me? And so this is a parable about whom God can trust to do kingdom-minded things. See, this is the deal with the one-talent guy. Listen, I would rather be this guy than what the one-talent guy is. I would rather have taken that one talent, invested it, risked it for kingdom things, and lost all of it. I would rather be the guy that comes back to the master empty-handed and say, God, I, I, I took the one talent you gave to me. I invested it. I thought this was going to be a great thing, and it didn't turn out. It didn't work out. I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing in return. I would rather be that guy than the guy we find in Scripture who attempted nothing. And then we come to verse 29, which is actually the point of the parable. I love parables where they actually just spell out, here's what it's about. And it says, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So what this is saying is basically for those people whom God can trust, and consequently for those churches whom God can trust, those people, those individuals will never lack for people, they will never lack for resources. They will never lack for opportunity. 
See, it is because of the possibility of these things, the parable of the talents is an invitation to see life from God's eyes. It's an invitation from God to see things as they really are, to live life for what they can be, a joy as we walk step for step with the kind master. The parable of the talents is an invitation to join God on his terms, doing his work for the sake of his kingdom and for the glory of God. That's what the parable of talents is for you and I. It's an invitation to step into the very best that God has for us. In Matthew 11, he says this, man, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come and learn from me. Come and walk with me. Come and be a part of what I'm doing. And yet, some of us have stepped into that, and some of us are playing a game. I would really love to end the sermon at this point. I really love to land the plane here, pray, just walk off. But I can't do that. As your elder, as your shepherd, I love you too much. And so we've got to take a look at verse 30. Verse 30 says this, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping, and there will be gnashing of teeth. So what is verse 30 teaching us? Basically, it's this. The refusal to accept the invitation to step into what God has offered us carries a heavy toll and a heavy price because it reveals who those people really are. See, the ultimate end game is to be made into a disciple, to be made into someone who is a follower and a learner of Jesus Christ. And one of the identifying marks of a disciple is someone who takes everything they have everything that they've been entrusted with. And they lay that at the foot of the cross and they say, God, it is yours. My money, my house, my car, my spouse, my children, everything I have in this world, it's yours, God. Take it. That is one of the identifying marks of a disciple. It is that open-handed approach to close-fisted approach. I don't know how many times I've heard Matt Chandler mention this. But to be open-handed with life is to say, God, it is all yours. You can have it. But most of us struggle with this. We'll say, God, you can have this, and you can have this, and you can have this, and you can have this, but I'm hanging on to this. Now, we would never admit that. We would never come out and say that, but that's how we live. That's what we do with our lives. But here's the reality of what verse 30 is teaching us. Those who approach God and consequently all of life with this closed-fisted approach and says, it's in my life, I'll do whatever I want with it, I'll take whatever I want from this life, like They never knew the master. They didn't know him. Like, here's what I'm saying. They're not saved. Like, I don't care how many aisles they've walked, how many times they've been baptized. They are not saved. Anybody that approaches life that way because saved people think of God as ultimate. And even in their sin and even in their failures and even as they stumble forward and they face plant time and time and time again, they still see God as ultimate, not just some add-on to their lives. So the just and the fair outcome for the person who knows things about the master without knowing the master is an eternal Godless hell. Man, that is harsh stuff. That is serious stuff, but it is important stuff to know. I I think of it this way a lot of times. I think the mercy of God is this. The mercy of God is like having a spear driven through your chest. And it is so painful and it is so excruciating that it drives you to your knees. And slowly over time, you pull 
that spear out of your chest. That is the mercy of God because he's confronting you with what is wrong with you. And in that process, you can be healed. The mercy of God is not to be indifferent to your sin. That's not love. In fact, indifference is the opposite of love. The mercy of God is confronting you on the things that are keeping you from knowing him and experiencing more of him. Those are the things that need to be addressed. In other words, God loves you too much to leave you just the way you are. Listen, we say this all the time around here. It's okay to not be okay. It really is. It's just not okay to stay that way. And so we want the love of Jesus. We want the gospel to change you and to change your heart, and it flows through all of your life. And so this is my prayer for you this morning as I close, that God would open your eyes to the reality of your own life, the way you live it, your motivations for the way that you live it, and who you believe controls it in light of who God really is. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you for this opportunity that you've laid upon us. I thank you for the truth that you lay out in Scripture. I thank you for not sugarcoating what life is with you. Lord, I, I pray this morning, I'm thankful for this place, I'm thankful for this church, and I'm thankful for the way that we strive to serve you. But Lord, if there are those in here who are playing a game with you, who pretend to know you when they really don't know you, I pray that you would speak to them, I pray that you would speak to their heart, and that some might be saved today, that you might just save them. And Lord... I just pray that as a church, we would always be the kind of people who would look towards you, who would recognize that you've entrusted us with great things, that we would take that seriously, that we would learn what it means to walk in the joy step for step with you. I pray all these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.